electronics. So this evening, I would like to look at meditation, and in a way, at meditation for life, because we're going to do meditation, sitting, walking, and also in everything we do, we try to do meditation. So I want, in a way, to look at the environment in which we practice meditation, and also in terms of our life. And so first to look at meditation in terms of all our life, to be careful not to take it so much as a special exotic activity. If I do meditation, I'll get this, and once I get it, then I can move on. Then maybe then I can take basketball or something else. I mean, why not? But it seems to me that meditation is is more than just getting a required something. I think it's kind of, in a way, bigger than that. The aspiration for wisdom, for compassion, is much bigger than getting a certain specific result, and as such, quite separate from our daily life. And of course, when we sit in meditation, we can experience meditative state, where we feel really quiet and clear, or we might have mystical experience. But it seems to me that this happens. It happens at times. It just depends on conditions. Even mystical state and meditative state are conditioned. And generally, they don't last very long. So they happen upon certain conditions, stay a while, and pass away. And so, of course, they can be very nurturing. But it seems to me more important than these two, either a mystical state or meditative state or even inside. To me, the stronger effect of meditation is actually more subtle and is what I would call the de-grasping effect. For me, meditation is very much over time to learn to ungrasp. We have such a tight hold on ourselves, on the world, and this can cause us a lot of suffering. And I think that's where, in terms of our life, all our life, it makes a difference. And what I find interesting is that often I have people who come to me and they say, I have been meditating for 10 years and my meditation is really not improving. And my first question is, what about your life? And generally, they say, oh, yes, my life is much better. <laughs> so obviously, something is happening in the meditation which makes a difference into their life. And often is that de-grasping effect. Also, personally, I would question the fact that the person say, my meditation has not improved in 10 years. What I think it means is that they are not meditating in the way they think they should be meditating. And often I feel that when we sit in meditation, we are measuring ourselves to some abstract model. What a friend said, what you saw, read in a book, one of the more, most dreadful books for this is a Zen book by Philip Kaplow, Kaplow, The Three Pillars of Zen. Don't read this book. <laughs> because if you read this book, you have this idea, I must be enlightened yesterday. And otherwise, I really am nothing as a meditator. 
So in a way, to be careful of the abstract idea we have about what we should have accomplished by now. Talking more to the person, it was obvious that our meditation had improved. She was more calm, she was more spacious, she had less thought, less often. But of course, she did not ex experience meditation is not an abstraction. The meditation is within the condition in which we find ourselves. So today, I think, according to your conditions, at times, the meditation was bright and clear. Very likely, after lunch, it was a little sleepy and dull. And possibly, this evening, it will rise up again. I think, to me, this is what is very interesting. We are not trying to create a permanent state. We are trying, in a way, to cultivate certain qualities and doing that to very much, in a way, develop this de-grasping, this kind of, you know, being in the world in a different way. And at that level, I would say in terms of meditation for all our life, it seems to me it's food for the organism, food for our being, food for our spirit. And as such, it is not very special. Because you see, when you eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, unless you go to a very expensive restaurant, it's not very special. You eat to feed yourself. And I think to me also, when we meditate, we are feeding ourselves. And the comparison I would make is with brushing our teeth. Every day, I presume once or twice a day, we brush our teeth, and we don't stand there and say, wow, it was such an amazing brushing of teeth. I must tell everybody about it. This is the best method. We just do it because we feel better for doing it. And I think meditation is a little like that. So I would say meditation takes us on a lifelong journey. And it is multifaceted, and it has different aspects of learning, of opening, of letting go. And that, to me, this lifelong journey is very important, that idea. Not to think that finally, one day, awakening is going to happen to me, and then this is it. I'm finished with meditation. I'm finished with sitting, no more pain in the legs, I'll be enlightened, and I will be sorted. No, I think it's more complex than that. As Stephen said, it is a process. And in a way, we can continuously learn. We can continuously open. We can continuously let go. And I think at that level, we have to be careful of what I would call the hidden spot, the blind spot that we might have understand something, we might have had a deep meditative state, and we might still be stuck somewhere. And I think that's where the teachers are there to give suggestions, but they are not perfect beings. They, too, are working on themselves, learning, opening, letting go. I had a friend with whom I lived with, in a community with different people, and he was a great teacher. I mean, he knew all the sutra. He was so such a good teacher of the sutra. He also had lots of meditative experience, and he had 
experienced really deep meditative state. And he was an extremely difficult person to live with. And one of these things, he was so intent upon the Dharma. Everything has to be Dharmic. Every single thing, from breakfast to lunch to dinner. It has to be Dharma. And at the time, we had a friend who was very ill. And in a way, you could say he'd been dying for 15 years of leukemia, but he had been given six months, but 15 years, he was still, I mean, he had such a desire to live. And he was a Buddhist, he was a meditator, but he wanted to live. He did not want to go on his next rebirth, that was for sure. And the first friend, the great teacher, one of his favorite activity was to get to see this friend who was dying. And he would go to see him and talk to him about impermanence and rebirth and, you know, things like that. Very Darwin. And I used to keep an eye on this occasion because I knew my friend, the one dying, would be so upset. So I would kind of wait for the other one to leave and then I would go and say, I don't want to hear about impermanence. I don't want to, I want to leave. And that's when I would talk to him about life because that's what he wanted to talk about. And so in a way, to be careful is not because we know a lot or we have experienced a lot. I think there is always something we can learn, always something we can open to. So in a way, to me, that's why it's a lifelong journey. And as such, that's why it is interesting. We, in a way, never arrive somewhere because often there is still a little corner somewhere to work upon. And if I think of my teacher, Master Kuzan, who was a great master in Korea, and he, he was reputed to have had three awakenings. And you might say, but one should be enough, you know? <laughs> but he had three. But what was interesting is to the last day of his life, he meditated. We would travel in train, in buses. He would be meditating. He would kind of, hey, I would be reading the paper, hey, you must meditate. <laughs> I had more to get to, but still. He meditated more than I. So in a way to see, this is a lifelong journey we are on. We are not trying to reach a definite thing right here, right now. We are just working, opening, learning, letting go on this lifelong journey. I also think that meditation for life, because I personally, I really feel that meditation is to help us to recognize and appreciate life. And I think at that level, the breath is very useful. Because when we pay attention to the breath, we're actually paying attention to life. We're paying attention to our potential for life in this moment. Because as my teacher used to say, Master Cousin, your life rests upon a single breath. So with this breath, with this life right here, right now, what do you want to do with it? And this is was one of my most humbling experience with him. Is just before he died, we went for a walk, and we stopped, and he said to me, you know, we never know 
how are we going to be when we die? I too, I don't know how I'm going to be when I die. And for this reason, I meditate. So at any given moment, when it happens, I will have done the best for my life in that moment. And that's what he did to the last moment of his life, even though he was half paralyzed, he has to be sat in meditation. And I think to me, what is sad in a way is that we take so often our life for granted. We don't kind of see, in a way, the preciousness of each breath, my breath and everybody else's breath. And to be really aware of that, I think, gives another quality to our life, a more kind of a more present, being more present to our life, instead of, in a way, to be bored by it. I mean, often people say meditation is boring. Nothing happens. I would say it's restful. Enjoy it. Nothing is happening. Isn't it great? And in a way, to, 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 to look, in each moment we meditate, in each moment we can be aware in a very full way of our life, of our potential and other life other potential. Because often I feel we have this frustration. We have this desire to be somewhere else, to be someone else. But I would say actually meditation, the gift of meditation is of acceptance. To realize, to experience, there is nowhere else to go. There is no one else to be. And to me, this is a kind of, in a way, a great thing to experience, to learn to be with our life. Of course, in connection with other life. And to be careful with this, often I would call this idealistic, heroic aspiration to be something other, to be something special. And when I was young, I wanted to be special. I wanted to be so special. Year 11, I wanted to save the world. Then I thought I could be president of the republic. Then I thought maybe I downgraded to MP, then I downgraded to journalist. And in the end, I mean, I just became a meditator. <laughs> but in Korea, when I was a nun, I was very special. I was one French nun among 60 million French people. I mean, special. Then I was one French nun in Korea, one among 60 million Koreans. I mean, one among 120 million. That is special, isn't it? Very special. And then I stopped being a nun. I stopped shaving my head. I stopped wearing clothes of a nun. And this was a very fascinating experience, walking in the street in the French village and feeling very strange. And then I looked, but why am I feeling strange? Nobody was looking at me as special. And it was so revealing. You see, often we think the monks and the nuns are so humble, but I think it fits a bit into their special feeling myself having come back from it. And this is when, in a way, some years ago, I had this very interesting experience. 
And I was just uh, playing dominoes with my grandmother, who was quite ill and quite old. And so she could not really move too much. And this was autumn. And in autumn, leaves fall on the terrace. And my grandmother ate leaves, really. They were evil leaves. <laughs> so we're doing the domino, and suddenly she looks. Two leaves. So she goes going to get up. So I get up instead of her. I sweep the leaf, come back, the domino. Three leaves. So get up, sweep, back to the domino. Four leaves. I get up. And so the third time, I'm starting to sweep. And I can see the movement of the mind. This is not really heroic, is it? Just dominoes, sweeping leaves. <laughs> and then suddenly I saw that there was nothing else to do in that moment. Just to play domino, just to sweep leaves. That's all I needed to do in that moment. I did not do to be, I did not need to be heroic. I did not need to be special. I could just do this. And at that moment, there was this incredible ease. And to me, this is, in a way, one of the gifts of meditation, in a way to become ordinary in what I would call an ethical and creative way, a very mindful and aware way. Then there is what I would say faith in potential in this life. And at that level, I would say meditation is cultivating, it's training, it's experimenting. And so, of course, we have a potential for positive and for negative. And I would say that meditation is a cultivation of the positive, cultivation of calm. And I think it's important to see when we talk about calm in meditation, it doesn't mean that you're going to be immobile and that you are calm no matter what happens. To me, the calmness we develop in meditation is actually more of a spaciousness, more of a kind of like a stability, a spacious, stable way of being, not this kind of still, immobile way of being, but a kind of like a calm lake, which is in a way very wide, very spacious. And so in that way, if we have space, if we develop spaciousness within ourselves. We actually develop spaciousness around the condition and the circumstances. And then it will help us to respond creatively instead of reacting blindly. Because to me, that's where a lot of the suffering comes, where we react very automatically. When I feel meditation through this development of this spaciousness, this stability helps us to be able to respond more creatively to the varied circumstances of our life. Again, openness. For me, meditation is very much about developing openness, engagement with the self, engagement with others, engagement with the world. So the awareness we develop is not just a self-awareness. but we become, As we become aware of ourselves, we also become aware of others. And I think this is what is interesting. Notice in meditation, when we come back to the breath, 
we don't just come back to the breath. We come back to everything else in that moment. The sound, the people, the feeling, the sensation, everything in that moment. And notice when you go away, when you go away into some thought or some past or future thought, you go into abstraction. And as soon as you go into abstraction, actually you are not here. As soon as you come back to the breath, you come back to everything in that moment. Notice it in meditation. And then there is a brightness, the creativity, the responsiveness. So I think that's what for this reason, the openness, to be careful that we don't use the meditation as a means to anesthetize ourselves. To me, on the contrary, the awareness is, again, not to become too sensitive, but actually to develop this stability, this openness, so that we can really be aware and engage with our conditions and with also the outer conditions. And in order to do that, we also need to cultivate the brightness, the creativity, the responsiveness, to kind of, in a way, really use that ability of the mind to be bright, to be illuminating. So the meditation is not just about calming the mind and the being. It's also about developing the brightness of the mind, the brightness of the being. And so I would say what we do in meditation is actually we are developing, cultivating concentration and inquiry, and that helps us to develop calmness, spaciousness, and clarity, and that in turn becomes, is developed into creative awareness, which we can then apply in our daily life. And that's why my friend said, the meditation don't seem much different, but my life seems much different because we use that creative awareness in our life. In our life, we don't say, oh, wait a minute, I have to meditate. But more, the awareness we cultivate here, we can then take to look at what is it that causes suffering in my life? What is it that makes me cause suffering in others' lives? And then we try to kind of look at the conditions, as Stephen said. That's why now I'd like to say a few words about what do we do when we meditate and what's the connection, in a way, with daily life. So I would say what we do is we cultivate together, simultaneously or separately, depending on the technique, concentration and experiential investigation, also known as samatha and vipassana. And concentration, I feel, is very important because it helps us to develop calmness, stillness, and spaciousness. And so how do we do this? I think it's very important to see that when we meditate, there is a spectrum of focusing. We can, we can focus on a very small object, or we can, in a way, try to focus in a very wide, open way, without focusing on anything precise. And I think there is, in between this, very small and very wide, there is a whole spectrum of how we can focus. Personally, what I would in general recommend, unless you find something better, which is fine too, is 
to in a way focus in the foreground on something, but really a wide open awareness. So the focus is not narrow, you're not trying to exclude anything, but you focus on something to try to anchor you in the moment, as Sharda uh, mentioned about the breath anchoring us. So we need the focus to anchor us, to come back to. And at the same time, this focus is within a wide open awareness. We hear sound, we feel sensation, there are thoughts, feelings, etc. But they rise and pass away. And to me, this is what makes the meditation efficacious. Why does it work? Why does it have this deep grasping effect? Because of the focusing. And so often you feel the meditation is about concentrating. I must be just with the breath the whole of the time. Personally, I think this is nearly impossible. Maybe if you meditate for a, a month and really, really hard, then maybe it becomes much easier to do that. But to me, the more effective aspect of the meditation is the fact that you come back. You come back. And I know you think, why do I have to come back? Why can't I stay there? But why do you have to come back? Because you have a brain. If you have a brain, you're going to have thought. If you have a body, you're going to have sensation. You have a heart, you're going to have feeling. This is just a natural, in a way, manifestation of a body. So you have thought because you have a brain. So off you go. Try to be with the breath, off you go. But what is interesting is you come back. And when you come back, you are not feeding your habits. This is a key in the focusing. This is what is essential. That generally, we have a thought, off we go. We proliferate. Or we have a, a feeling, oh, you go into the feeling. Or you have a sensation, oh, you go, you go, you go, you go. But here, you're aware of the thought, you're aware of the feeling, you're aware of the sensation, but you stay with it as it is. You don't exaggerate, you don't proliferate with it because you come back. So you, ne you never go too far away. So the problem is not with going. You could say the problem is how soon do I come back? Sometimes you come back within a second, sometimes you might come back within five minutes, depending on energy level and whatever. But this is what works. The fact, because when you come back, you do two things. You don't feed the habit, and at the same time, you dissolve the power of the habit so that it can go back to its useful function. So all of us, if we notice, and I think meditation really helps us to see that, we all have mental habits, emotional habits, and physical habits. And we have a tendency generally to feed them and to identify with them. And to me, I feel the focusing, the concentration, helps us to, in a way, bring those habits, to dissolve their power, and then they can become more creative function. And the creative function of body, mind, and heart. Let, let, let me give you some examples. So, one of our favorite activities when we sit in meditation, you might have experienced it today, is daydreaming. This is wonderful, isn't it? You sit in meditation, start with the breath, and then 
suddenly you have this very seductive thought. If I had, if I was, if I won the lottery, if I was a great enlightened master or mistresses, whichever your daydream is about. And this is wonderful daydreaming. I mean, it's very, the time passes very fast when you daydream. And you improve the little daydream so it's even better. And why is it so seductive? Because everything goes according to plan. Because it's like a film in which you do everything. You are the actor, the screenwriter, the producer, and you also sell the peanuts. Everything. It's a mono-reality. So it's wonderful. But actually, it is frustrating because very often the present doesn't fit with the daydream because the present is a multi-dimensional reality. And so, in a way, I had this tendency. That's why I can speak about it so well. I used to do this a lot. I used to sit in meditation in Korea and I used to daydream about going to hermitage, practicing hard, becoming enlightened, and saving everybody. So, I would, until one day I realized I was not meditating. I was daydreaming about meditating. And then I started to kind of work on the habit. But it's a very strong habit, extremely strong habit. It took me a long time to dissolve its power. Finally, one day, I was sitting in meditation. And for an hour, the whole meditation, I could feel, mm, no, mm, no. And the whole hour, that's what I did. Come back, come back, come back. And at the end of that hour, it was gone. And I don't do it ever again. I can't even get myself to, no interest. That's what is, so we have to see the mental habit seems so powerful. But actually, with the help of meditation, if we dissolve their power, they really, they don't have the trigger anymore. So I think the meditation is to help us dissolve the power of the habit. And then it can go back to this useful function of imagination. When I want to creatively imagine something, I can do it, and I can stop it whenever I want. Or if we look at emotional habits, another one I know very well is anger. I'm much improved since I meditate, much better. But I can, there is this, I would say, irritation grow within myself. And I can remember I would wake up in the morning when I used to live in a community which is excellent to raise anger, I would say. And I used to wake up in the morning and I would say to Stephen, I am angry. And he would say, but what about? And I would say, I don't know. Because actually anger, once, I'll talk more about it later on, another night, it, the function is that it's fiery. It makes you act. It's something which is very energetic. So anger per se it's a feeling that arises out of certain conditions. But how through habits it becomes a disturbing emotion. So it's not the fact that we should not be angry. It arises. But what do we do with it? How do we exaggerate? How do we proliferate? 
And so how do we, can we take it back to its functioning? And I know for myself, and that's why tomorrow we'll talk about sensation. It's only when I started instead of being in the abstraction of the story of the anger, to be in the feeling in the body of the anger. How does it feel inside my body? And when you really experience it inside your body, you realize it is painful. And nobody does this to you but yourself. And it's when I experienced that, that it went. And then you can, in a way, look at how it is constituted in a different way. And I think it's the same with the body. I think the body, as a there are physical patterns in our body. And I think they are signals for us to be more conscious of our body. For example, I sit on a chair because I easily have sciatica. If I sit on the floor for 30 minutes, guaranteed, I will have sciatica. So now I don't sit on the floor anymore. I just sit on the chair. And if I may say so, it is very unpainful. So if you have pain sitting on the floor, you could maybe alternate, sitting on the chair one time, sitting on the floor another time, if you want to work with sitting on the floor. But through having sciatica, I learned a lot about listening to my body, being more aware. How do I use my body? Am I friendly with my body? Or am I kind of, you know, using it like kind of a, a beast of burden? Or do I kind of open to it, and what can I do with it? How can I, in a way, that's why awareness of the body, I think, is so vital in order to take care of ourselves, to listen not only to our physical habit, but in a way also to the emotional habit, and also inquire into the mental habit. But I'll talk more about this another day. Then the other aspect of the meditation is experiential inquiry, vipassana, looking deeply. And this can be done in many different ways, in many different traditions. And so this week we will do the awareness way, and just one day I will introduce the questioning, but toward the end of the week, more the Zen way. But very much experiential investigation is to, in a way, cultivate that ability we have to be vivid, to be clear, to be open, to be creative. So the awareness we are developing is not a bare, impervious awareness. It is an engaged awareness. I would say creatively engaged awareness. And so what do we do in this experiential investigation? It is not an abstraction, but it's very much going inside the experience itself. And seeing, sensing, as Stephen already mentioned, the changing nature of it. And why do we put so much focus on the changing nature of things? Because one of the suffering we cause ourselves is what I would call permanentizing. You have something, it is always like this. It, you never do this. When you say to, about somebody, when you say about yourself, I am always stupid. It means that you are stupid 
every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year. This, this is, you can't do it. Even if you tried it, you could not do it. But to see how much we are creating pain for ourselves when we permanentize, when we say always, never, it is always like this. Not, it, possibly it has a tendency to be like this, but it's not always like this. And so in a way, to notice a changing nature makes us be more in tune we, with the way conditions are. To me, this is the thing. We are more in tune with it, and then we can more creatively engage with conditions instead of, in a way, fighting with them. And that's why also the other thing is to this conditioned nature, the fact that things are conditioned. You could say, but what's, what's the deal? What, what's the point? Again, is to counteract a tendency we have to in a way, solidify ourselves, to fix ourselves, to have this feeling we exist separately, independently. This afternoon, when we did the guided meditation, I gave you, possibly for some of you, a strange instruction. I said, look into the breath. What is this air that we breathe? And why do I ask you to do this? It's in a way to kind of question a little the way we feel about ourselves. Generally, especially in the West, you talk about space, my space. When you say my space, what do you think about that much? At least is my space, and it ain't yours. And generally, it's the same with air. I mean, I breathe, I breathe air, and generally there is a slight assumption that this is my air, and it's fairly clean and pure. Yours, I have no idea about it, you know, but it's a bit over there. But if you look into the air that you breathe, I mean, I'm breathing, your air is going into my lung, mine is into yours, and that's why it gets a bit stale after a while. So, I mean, we are so connected. I mean, how more intimate can you be than through the air that you breathe? with the turkeys, with the deer, with the ticks, if they breathe, I don't know, and with the, <laughs> the trees, everything, everything that is alive, breathe in a way. And in a way, we're breathing together. And to me, when we experience that, we cannot feel ourselves uh, disconnected. We are connected to everything that breathes in each moment. So in a way, when we watch the breath, the breath, <laughs> but at the same time, I feel that if we look deeply into the breath, it seems to me we have the, a, a slight sense of that connection with all of life. So again, the experiential inquiry is to dissolve certain, again, habits we have, habits of permanentizing, habits of separating, of isolating. And I would say that what this gives us is choices, that we start to be more flexible and we start to see the world and ourselves in a much more multidimensional way, much more pluralistic way, and give us more choices and be more creative in our lives. And so I would say these two things together, the concentration and the experiential investigation, 
help us to create, to develop, to activate this creative awareness that then we can use in our daily life. We can use at work, we can use in our relationship, we can use when we go for a walk. Notice, you go for a walk, if you're not afraid of the ticks or the mountain lion or the rattlesnake, if you go for a walk, you go for a walk. And you go for a walk because you want to be in nature. You want to breathe the fresh air, to be with nature. And look, what do you do? At the beginning, you're really there. And then, off you go. You're distracted, you think about the past, you think about the future, you think about everything but being aware, walking. And then you come back to the being aware. So you come back from the distraction to really be present. And you look around you. And then things happen, more, looks more vivid. Not because magically it's more vivid, but because the screen we have of distraction is gone. And then we see things more clearly. That's what, to me, a creative awareness can use, be used in so many different ways. But one way we can play with it here is when we walk in nature around us. And I would say creative awareness, in a way, has two aspects. One is acceptance, and the other one is transformation. That this creative awareness is not a judging awareness. Sometimes I feel people use awareness as a means to to judge yourself, to kind of look, what am I doing? Am I a good Buddhist or not? That, to me, is not this awareness. Creative awareness is really seeing what is going on and being totally aware of the good, of the bad, of the difficult, of the easy, and consciously, in a way, creatively engaging with all these aspects of ourselves. And really, and in a way, in order to transform anything, we have to really know it. We have to really see it, to really be present to it. And I think that's what creative awareness gives us. That acceptance, ah, that's the way it is. And then you can look at the condition which makes this arise and see how can I play with the conditions. And to finish with, I would like to read a quote from a Chinese and master, Master Tawi. And he's an interesting master because he was at a great connection with the lay people. And often there was uh, lots of letters between him and the lay people. And that's what has been translated is just these letters he sent to the lay people. And this is one letter he's sending. And obviously, the person who sent the letter is replying to said, my son is very ill, and I'm very distressed. And that's what Master Tao is saying. I take it, your fifth son is not recovering from his illness. It is precisely when afflicted that you should carefully investigate and inquire where the affliction arises from. If you cannot get to the bottom of its origination, then where does the one who is afflicted right now come from? If you want to think, then think. If you want to cry, then cry. And why I like this quote 
is because for me, it's very much about creative awareness and creatively engaging with situation and giving you choices. So he says you're really distressed. The first thing you can do is to really look. Where does the affliction arise from? So really look into the source of the affliction, but not in an abstract way, but really looking deeply, where does this come from? If you cannot do that, then look within yourself. Where do you come from? So in a way, looking deeply into your own being. If you cannot do that, if you want to think, then think. If you want to reflect about your distress and the situation, just do that. And if you're very distressed and extremely sad, if you want to cry, then cry. So it shows us there is not just one way of being a meditator, but that there are, in a way, different ways we can be according to our condition. If we feel very strong, very energetic, we can look deeply into where is this pain? Then we can, in a way, look, but who is this person who is in this pain in this moment? Otherwise, you can reflect on it. Otherwise, you can just cry because it's painful. So that's what I wanted to say tonight. We just have a, a little time, just about 10 minutes, if there was any questions or comments. If there is no question, this is also fine. I mean, as we go over the days, maybe question will come, or maybe in interviews, or in the discussion, or in another, at the end of another talk. So, thank you for listening. And now there is walking meditation. So in the walking meditation, trying to be very aware present to the walk, to the person who walks. Because when you do walking meditation, you're not going anywhere. You just try to be aware that you walk. Be very present to the walking. And at the same time, being present that you don't walk in emptiness. You walk, there are people around you, you see things, you hear things. And how can, in a way, you have the foreground, the focus on the body, and wide open awareness, what you see, what you hear, but you don't grasp and you don't reject. And at the same time, you notice, if you can time to time, the changing nature of things. How things get warmer, cooler, how feelings, sensations, thoughts arise and pass away. And then we meet